Hey everybody, it is Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast uh, as we approach the latter half of 2021. Um, this episode and, and most of our episodes in July are brought to you by Gong, uh, Gong.io, the game changer in sales intelligence, conversational intelligence, Vidyard and Salesforce, Sales Cloud. Um, with that being said, we've got a, a really interesting guest today, Michael Brody Waite. I hope I said your last name correct, Michael. You did. Um, and you know, Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you describe who you are and what you do because um, it's it's pretty interesting, and I don't know that I'll do it justice. Sure. So um, I think basically for the listeners, the thing for me is at the age of 23, um, I was hopelessly addicted to alcohol and drugs. Um, from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night, all I wanted to do was to get high. And uh, that led to me, the only money I had was what I could steal from my friends. I was throwing up blood. Um, and this is kind of a heavy introduction. So I'll, I'll let everybody laugh at this one. But my doctor told me that the only thing higher than my liver enzymes was me. Um, at age of 23, you don't want to be told that. And um, so I've been kicked out of college, fired from my job, evicted from my home, my car had been repossessed, I wanted to die. And now I go around the world and I talk to people, um, leaders of companies like Google and Dell and, and startups and all that kind of stuff. And I tell them that I think their leaders should lead their organizations like addicts. And they say, what the heck are you talking about? And it's because I know a thing or two about leadership too. my clean date, September 1st, 2002. I took everything that I've learned as an active recovering addict and integrated it into my leadership style, which led me to go from being a, a temporary rep at a kiosk in a mall um, for a Fortune 50 company to having a $250 million PL and 19 direct reports in my 20s with no college degree after eight years working my way up the corporate ladder. I left that job at the height of the recession like a crazy person and founded a company that was the first to do online scheduling in healthcare. Um, we became an Inc. 500 company with no investors and were acquired by a publicly traded company. And then I left that post and I took over a nonprofit that helped 2000 entrepreneurs a year start or grow a business. And that's when they told me that my leadership style was different. And I kept just telling, finding myself telling people, I just do what drug addicts do. And so that's when I did my TED talk titled Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. Um, it went viral. It's got over two and a half million views wrote a book and now I just go carry this message wherever I can. And the message is really simple. It's not about leadership and it's not about an addict overcoming a story. It's about the system that addicts have been using to recover for the last 80 years and how you can apply that to your leadership to unlock a really differentiated level of value as a great leader. And so that's why I'm here. And that's my message. How'd I do? I, I think you nailed it. I know Scott's got a thousand questions at this point, right? Yeah, well, of course. <clears throat> well, what, what are the, things that addicts do that are applicable to leadership let's just start there give give us yeah, a soundbite so, sound of the of the ted talk so you know the and, and here's the parallel is um everybody tells an addict to stop using and you can tell an addict to stop using until you're blue in the face but they won't stop until you what tell them what to start instead same thing with leaders um we're telling leaders that they need to be authentic and they need to have authentic companies and brands and employees and leadership styles but nobody's actually equipping them with the how they're just saying you need to be authentic and there isn't like a step-by-step -step system well when i got clean i woke up at the betty ford center in rancho mirage california and they said this is how you stop using and they gave me a step-by-step -step system a 12-step system in fact that I could apply, that anyone could apply that would produce the outcome of me no longer using drugs and no longer drinking alcohol. 
And so what I've done is I've taken everything I've learned in that program and how I apply it to leadership and I encapsulate it in three principles. The first one is practice rigorous authenticity as an addict. We have to be authentic because we're liars. And if we don't bring everything out into the light, we will start dying without even knowing it. And so the first step for me was I had to be rigorously authentic about the fact that I was an addict. That meant take, you know, be truly, truly, truly honest with everybody about everything, no matter what the cost. The second principle is surrender the outcome. Um, that's one that leaders are not taught. They're taught to control outcomes. And as a result, they waste a tremendous amount of time focusing on things that they can't control at the expense of what they can. I could not control the fact that I was an addict, but I could control what I did about it. And I had to surrender the, what it meant when I said I'm Mike and I'm a drug addict. And the third principle is doing uncomfortable work. When you're able to practice rigorous authenticity and surrender the outcome, you're able to do a differentiated amount of uncomfortable work. And I'm not talking about when we talk about like leaders, they know how to do smart work and hard work. That's intellectual and physical, but uncomfortable work is emotional. It's that pit in the middle of our stomach that makes us not ask for the right terms with a customer. It's that pit in the middle of a stomach that makes us not performance manage a poorly uh, performing employee. We've all seen leaders waste eight hours doing hard work and smart work when they're avoiding 10 minutes of uncomfortable work. Well, you know what? Becoming a recovering addict and having to go to meetings and get a sponsor and work the steps, going into a room full of strangers and announce that I'm an addict, that's uncomfortable work. And so that's what I had to do those three principles, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work to survive. But what I found out was as a leader later in my life, they allowed me to thrive. The authenticity piece, but I want to start there because it makes me also think about transparency. And, and there's a lack of transparency in a lot of organizations. This could come from why certain decisions are made to, I've been in part of companies where people wouldn't tell you like what was going on in terms of the fume date or the, the funding round or all this kind of hiring decisions, all this kind of thing. Why are leaders clinging to that kind of secret stuff and refusing to be so transparent and honest about what's going on? Uh, I think that's a great question. I don't know that I have the whole answer, but, but in my book, I've got part of the answer. So um, when I look at the individual leadership philosophies that we've been taught, it comes from command and control leadership that came out of the military. You know, you see a general on a battlefield that's got to control perception of everything for people to follow him. You've got a translating to the corporate boardroom where the CEO of a publicly traded company can't say I need help or I don't know. And so we have this general belief that as leaders, we need to hide ourselves. And I was saying this 18 years ago, and I'm still saying it now, even though it's weird, but like we hide ourselves behind a mask, not obviously not a physical mask. And so in my book, what I talk about is leaders are doing this to their to their own detriment. It doesn't make sense. And the manifestations are, are I've got more, more than more than this, but there's three major manifestations. Leaders say yes, when they could say no, they hide weaknesses and they avoid difficult conversations. These three simple actions cost them 500 hours a year, are completely within their control, and yet they do them over and over and over again, despite negative consequences. And so what I argue is, a, the definition of addiction is doing the same thing over and over again, despite negative consequences. So the only explanation I can come up with for why leaders don't say no, don't share their weaknesses and don't have all the difficult conversations is they are addicted to wearing the mask the same way I was addicted to using the drugs and getting high. So how do you, how do you get them to recognize this, right? Like, you know, I, you know, you can, for those who aren't, who are listening, 
Scott and I are like nodding our head. Yes. <laughs> right. I'm sure people listening are doing the same thing. So what's, you know, what is that first step to make a, to, to get a leader to finally go, yeah, I'm doing that. Now what, like, how do you, how do you give someone a, you know, yeah, you know, look, go, please go buy the book. Like it's an amazing book, but you know, give them something to chew on when they, when they get off this thing. Yeah. You know, so for, for me as an addict, the, the first thing I had to do was, was get out of that, you know, concept of denial where I was in denial that I had a problem. And so I think one of the challenges um, in leadership today is we don't actually have quantitative measurements of the impact that happens when we say yes, when we shit, when we hide our weaknesses and when we avoid difficult conversations. And so that's why me and my team built an assessment um, called the mask assessment. Um, anybody can take it, it's free. And you, you take, you answer 20 questions. And of those behaviors I named, we tell you which one is your problem. We tell you what your authenticity percentage is. And we identify the behaviors that you're probably engaging in that are costing you 500 hours a year and what you can do to overcome them. For me right now, simply creating awareness that mask addiction in the leadership world is costing teams and individuals and companies a tremendous amount is the beginning. And then the second thing is you got to equip people with a system to actually overcome it. You can't just tell an addict to stop using and say, good luck. You got to give us a specific system. And so since I believe that leaders are addicted to hiding themselves at work, we have leaders all over the world right now working our, what we call mass free program that are essentially just like recovering drug addicts. They go to meetings, they work the equivalent of the steps and they have the equivalent of a sponsor. And that allows the COO that's a young woman in an old man leadership team who has held her mouth shut for five years to start having the difficult conversations. That helps the middle manager that stops delegating to start saying no to all the requests coming in. That helps a salesperson that's avoiding all the difficult conversations with the qualifying questions and the closing questions start actually asking them because instead of saying, hey guys, you need to do this stuff, we're creating awareness that they have a problem. And that problem is not just a, you need to watch this TED talk problem. It's the same severity to some extent that I had to go through in order to get clean from drugs. So does creating awareness that there's a problem. Does any of this sound familiar to you, Richard? Oh, every single step of it, right? Like I think, you know, you know, my story is, and my belief is that, you know, none of us were taught how to be managers right? We just repeated what was behind us or what was taught to us, right? We were, we were all promoted in most cases to, because we could close more, we could handle objections. We could have certain types of uncomfortable conversations with our customers. And then, you know, we might help with the interview process, or we might look at a resume, or we might help onboard somebody for a day. And then they're like, oh, Richard's got great management skills. And there's like <laughs> no assessment to that at all. Do you, do you feel like there's, I, I, this is my belief and I'm curious what Michael thinks. I feel like there's three different layers to asking uncomfortable questions. There's asking uncomfortable questions of like prospects or clients. There's asking uncomfortable questions of your colleagues. And then the hardest one is asking uncomfortable questions of yourself. Do you, does that resonate with you? I, I, I'm curious what you think. Yeah. So, um, so, and Scott, I think you'll appreciate this, but like, um, the way that we structure how we do coaching around this is, um, there's the mask intervention, which is a speaking engagement and the assessment where you identify what mask you're wearing. Then there's the mask rehab, which is like a training. It's a workshop with eight weeks of support. 
And then there's the mastery program for ongoing recovery. And so in our mask rehabs, um, one of the things that we do is, you know, I would go in and I would, I would, I would be brought into like a leadership team at Google. Right. So I was really lucky when my Ted talk went viral, the VP of all of global marketing brought me at Google, brought me into her team and said, Hey, I, I want you to do this, this rehab for my team at the beginning of a quarterly planning session. And a lot of times, you know, I come in, I, I come in with this content and people go, I don't have a problem. I'm like, okay, I see you. I'm, I'm used to this. I've sponsored like a hundred drug addicts. I know what denial looks like. And so we have a process where we go step-by-step step that's very similar. It's not the same, but similar to what I went through in rehab that helped me understand that I have a problem. And so one of our exercises is called the seven dimensions of who. And one of the things that you do is you start looking at the buckets of the different groups of stakeholders. So we've got myself, people that are senior to me, people that are peer to me, people that are junior to me, customers, external stakeholders, and then just like other, like the internet or friends and family. And we have them start writing down people that they're saying yes to, that they could say no to, that they're hiding their weaknesses from, and that they're avoiding difficult conversations with. And when you start giving them a lens where they can start to inspect the different places in which they're quote unquote, wearing this mask, it creates awareness because a lot of times the executive that goes, I don't have a problem with this. I tell my story Two other executives, tell their story. They start going through that exercise and like, wait a second, this is happening a lot more than I thought. And you have to, you know, put up the mirror just like they did for me. So yeah, I mean, your, your groups are almost like a, a more aggregated version of those groups that I named, but it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, when did you, I want to sort of pull out of this. When did- Uh-oh, podcast is not going well. Richard no, 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 wants no, no, to no, pull no. out. <laughs> no, no, I want, to, I, want, I want to go backwards a little bit in time. Um, when did you realize you could put this business, this, this learnings, your life and your skills of, you know, your addiction piece into a business process? Like it's, it's so aligned. I've, I've heard it a thousand times. It's probably the best I've seen or heard it as an actual program, when did you sort of find that piece in you to go, oh, now I know what I'm doing? Because Scott and I talk a lot about side hustles, right? How do you create yep. a business from a side hustle? And so I'm, I'm sort of going back, Where what's the origin story of the business? Well, so for me, it started when I was, when I was trying to hustle in, in corporate America. And what I was being taught environmentally was, was almost the antithesis of what I was being taught when I went to meetings at night. And, and so I had to really challenge the traditional how you get promoted paradigm. And that was, I got promoted eight times in eight years, not because I was special, not because I was unique, because I was more aggressive in sharing my weaknesses. And as a result, I got more help. And as a result, I grew faster than my peers. Right. And, and that's that yeah. really good. Repeat that for people who are listening. So I actually, one of the, one of my weaknesses is I say my best lines really fast and then I keep going. We all do. Um, <laughs> good. I'm glad I'm not alone. So the way I got promoted eight times in eight years was I challenged this notion that you have to hide your weaknesses in corporate culture. And I had to do what drug addicts do to recover. And I had to aggressively share them by aggressively sharing them. I got exposed to more people that were able to help. And we didn't have to work through all the BS to get to what's your problem. I could just, instead of trying to manage perception, I just go straight to the problem. And as a result, I was able to grow faster than my peers. And so the way I say, I, the way my mentors became my employees at, at, at this fortune 50 company was simply because I was aggressive in sharing my weaknesses. I didn't have any special connections. I'm a college degree. I, I showed up with long hair, two hoop earrings and flip-flops. I mean, I was like not designed to be successful in corporate America and 
It was the fact that every time I would run into a roadblock, I would advertise it as my weakness and people would show up and they would help. And, and I would be, I would stick out in a sea of a bunch of people trying to turn a line that was going down up. I, I'm like chatting Scott separately going, dude, this guy is you. He's just cut his hair and shaved his beard. Right. Scott, <laughs> Scott, you got flip-flops on, right? I don't know. I'm out by the pool right now. I don't you have nothing on. Yeah, any nothing, there's nothing on the bottom half of Scott right now. That is, right, I like it. Much. Um, so, so I learned I wouldn't die. And that's the beginning of that story. The second half of that story is then when I founded my company, I was like, I'm going to lead in a way that is consistent with my recovery because everybody that was teaching me how to lead was teaching me things that were inconsistent with what I was being taught by my sponsor. Um, you have to control customer perception. Don't, don't let them know you messed up, you know, look bigger than you are. And, and all these, you know, manage your ego. You got to keep up with the Joneses as an entrepreneur. You got to get a yacht, like whatever, all this stuff. And, and so I, I saw very quickly why entrepreneurship and addiction are so intertwined. And I knew if I, if I was going to make sure that I didn't get lost as an entrepreneur, I was going to have to integrate my recovery into everything. So to save myself, I integrated everything I was taught in recovery into the culture of the company that I was building. And I truly believe that it was at the expense of our success. So for example, everybody was empowered to say no to a customer or me. If, if you were the executive assistant, frontline employee, didn't matter. I went in every single week to my team and aggressively declared my worst weaknesses that should get me fired as CEO. As a result, nobody tried to scramble to save face when, when they hit growth edge challenges. Um, we would have really, really uncomfortable meetings, but we would get done in, in one meeting what most companies would take 10 and, you know, with my credit card being bootstrapped, no investors, we went up against companies with 150 million venture capital. And we, when we were acquired, we were the number one in market share uh, with 50 employees versus our competitors that had 500 or 5,000. It's because what I realized was everything I learned in recovery made us incredibly efficient. It just, it, it, it just created massive efficiency saying no, massive efficiency. Our competitors would say yes to feature creep. And as a result, slow down their whole product development cycle. Um, they would say, yes, the wrong customers kill operations and implementation, right? Hiding weakness. If I'm hiding my weakness as CEO, if my executives are hiding their weaknesses, none of us are growing. Same thing I learned, you know, the Fortune 50 company. So my entire leadership team was homegrown. Everybody scaled with the company because nobody was hiding. I was modeling what it was looking like to truly own your growth edge. And that meant first thing, taking the mask off. And we already kind of covered difficult conversations, but this made us so efficient versus our competitors that I realized in doing that, that this wasn't something that I wanted to do and that I would pay a business price. This was our secret sauce. Um, I go around and I tell people right now, we had literally no patents. Nobody had an Ivy League degree. Nobody had taken a startup to a million in revenue or more. We had every disadvantage you can imagine, but the one advantage we had was a mask-free culture. And that's why we won. How and did so that was, so, go ahead. No, I, I, I'm wondering... You said it's everybody was homegrown. Nobody had kind of been there and done that before. Right. As you grew the company, you had to recruit new people in. Yes. Was it difficult in some sense to, to recruit? Because I would imagine some people might be intimidated by that or not ready for that type of environment. And so bringing new people in, is gotta, you got to be really, really careful. And you got to find the right person who's like, you know, open to, to that kind of 
communication style and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm wondering if that was challenging at all. Here's the thing. People that practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work, like to hang out with each other. So, because I was that way, I, my first level of leaders were people that I already knew lived that way. And then they recruited people in their network. And then once we had a basis and we understood what we were doing, we created an environment that was completely hostile to what most people are taught. And as a result, it was an oasis for the select few that matched our values. And because we didn't believe in wearing a mask, so to speak, we didn't take any venture capital and no offense to anyone that does. I'm, sometimes you have to, but you have to manage a lot of optics in that dynamic. And so as a result, we just got to make the decisions that made sense. And so we hired, we didn't have to hire people so fast that we compromised our value system. But then once you have people inside your culture that say no, share their weaknesses and have difficult conversations, it, it becomes a steward of your focus that you're able to be so much more effective and efficient with the same amount of resources because people aren't hiding. And then as a result, people are actually being more successful. So then actually what's happening is we aren't able to pay our people in stock options the way a VC company was, but we were paying them in something that was priceless. We were giving them an oasis where they could truly be themselves at work in a way that they couldn't be with friends and family. And that, that news travels fast and we didn't have to yeah. grow the number of people on our team so fast that we couldn't keep up with it. And we had to compromise those values because we were so efficient. Sound like it, it would act as more of like a pull effect too, like a magnet of bringing those, drawing those types of people in. So you maybe you don't have to do as much work to push out and go find and seek and interview. You know, they were almost all friends out. of people that we hired because they were like, "Dude, you're tired of working in that environment. Come here." I mean, dude. So who who does this? By the way, we sold the company in 2015. Most of us are gone by 17. We still have annual like alumni dinners where everybody wants to get together and have a dinner. I mean, they don't even do that for their colleges. Let alone, I mean, who does that for a company they worked at five years ago? And, and I was sitting at the, one of these dinners and I was looking around and I was thinking about, you know, I was running the nonprofit. Nonprofit work is highly political. There's a lot of masks. And I was thinking about why am I so comfortable with this group of people? And I was so uncomfortable when I was leading a nonprofit. And it's because every single person in that room practiced rigorous authenticity and they were comfortable with themselves. And every single person in that room surrendered the outcome as a practice. And they just made me feel safe. And so that's the environment that we made and it attracted people. And so when I sold the company and I started saying, I want more people to have this, I started to look back and really diagnose the processes that helped create that. And that's what, you know, started the Ted talk. And it started me experimenting with how do I take everything I learned as a recovering addict, as a leader and distill it into a step-by-step -step process. And if it's one thing that God gave me, it's a, it's a gift of creating a system for human beings out of a lot of nebulous material. Um, and I've learned that. I think, I think frankly, it's because of how the 12 step program structured my brain, but um, I have, a, I've had a lot of help and a lot of practice. I've been practicing teaching this to people for almost 10 years now. Um, and it's only really become successful as like, companies all over calling and having us come in and train their leaders. Um, that's only really started in the last year uh, because uh, I fought forever trying to teach this stuff and it was just words. And I was like, huh, what made a 12 step program explode literature? Okay. I got to freaking write a book. So it's really clear how you step-by-step -step do this. It's not just be rigorously authentic. I got to give people the stupid, simple system the same way I got it in recovery and because I, and 
you know, I don't know how much you guys know about 12 step recovery. I'm not gonna make assumptions, but like I started meetings and I didn't have a book or a system or a sponsor and they failed. I tried to just do the coaching that failed. I tried to do workshops where I just taught the system that failed. And I was like, you know what? You need the system, the sponsor and the society, and they all work together as a three-legged stool. So I got to put it all together in a book and then I got to go build what's in the book. And so I, I released the book a little over a year ago, and then I've been building in real life exactly what's in the book. And that's when it really started to take off. What do you, what do you still struggle with? Like we, you know, you're, you're a human, right? Just like how all- much time do you have? <laughs> um, minutes. So here, I'll tell you. About so, so time is a Ted talk. Okay. So the way that we work our program is every 28 days, we create a mask free action card. And those of you that are listening, you can't see what I'm showing Scott and Richard, my mask free action card for this month. So we use these cards as a way to practice these principles and attack specific growth edges that we have. And we do this every 28 days. So this is the one for me this month. And my mask is hiding a weakness. I can't control that. I'm insecure about my consulting value. I let the companies that I coach pull me out of my circle of strength because I'm insecure that I'll lose a contract. So I want to add more value. And then as a result, I reduce my expertise. They bring me in to talk about mass free stuff. And then they want to talk about management 101. And I, I know that stuff, but that's not my, my strength. So I can't control that. I'm insecure about my consulting value, but I can control if I stay within my consulting circle of strength. And so my daily reflection is, did I stay within my consulting circle of strength? And then I have mask free actions that are my uncomfortable work. And that is, I have to communicate clear expectations with a consulting client that'll hurt at least four times this month. And then I report back to my mask free circle once I've done that. And so I work a card like this every single month and I've done it on uh, pricing. I've done it on, I say yes to too many commitments. I've done it on staying on my cell phone around my children. I mean, like I said, how much time you got? I work a card like this every single month. I have no shortage of opportunities to apply it. Can you share that specific card with Richard? Because he might, he needs that particular card. I think I'd be happy to, I'll send you, I'll send you a, a picture of it. We have this conversation periodically, you know, we're all, all is it really days. that infrequent, Scott? I think it's more than just periodically. <laughs> well, I was being nice. Kind, so. Yes, I yeah. know. Yeah. So, you know, and, and we're in a couple different in, endeavors together. So it, it kind of crosses over and, and we have this thing where um, we'll put together a proposal together and Richard will come back and say, well, what if we did this, that, and this five, six other things to add value and justify the costs? And I'm like, no, what are you doing? stop, stop making more work for us. Oh, he needs this particular card as, as well. And there's probably 6,000 cards that I need as, as well. So let's, we won't get that twisted. But, but one of the things we're doing is we're building a, a, a library of cards for common problems leaders have. So for example, yeah. we had someone working our program that is at a high growth software startup and he was having his first child he and his wife were having another first child. And he was really worried about going on paternity leave. He was taking a longer period of time than is traditional for men, six to eight, you know, nine weeks or something like that. And he was really worried about how that would affect his career path. And so he had to work an action card on saying yes, when you could say no, because he knew that he was going to miss the most important three to, you know, three months of his life with his new daughter 
being present and he knew he was going to be checking in with the office. They were going to be checking in with him. He's going to be worried what people were going to find, you know, in terms of his work to maybe make him look bad. And so he had to work an action card saying yes, when you could say no on, and his specific uncomfortable work was a set of actions that he had to take that made him essentially not accessible during his paternity leave. And that required a tremendous amount of surrender on his part. Um, but that's like one example that we we've had people, uh, fire employees, put employee. We had a, we had a leader of a company that was like a $500 million company. He worked this process and he realized that he needed to performance manage his CFO. And he'd been avoiding a difficult conversation. Why the outcome, his CFO is his best friend and help him build a company. And so that was holding him back from doing that. So his uncomfortable work was to put his CFO on a performance plan and then look for some other people that maybe he was avoiding performance conversations with. And so I think we all have these challenges um, the question is, can you put it into a, a system that's really simple and easy to execute? And all people do with this card is they read it for one minute every day. It's, it's borrowing from something in the 12 step program called a 10 step that really is an incredible, powerful tool that most people don't therapists will tell you all you need to do is grow is, is have maintain awareness, but in a world where you're being bombarded with so much information, it's hard to keep awareness. All of our members read this for one minute a day, and that's how they, they build muscle memory on what they need to do. So I, you know, I'm going to take us in a place that we never go, which is uh, particularly this early is, is, you know, we don't, we don't really do product pitches, right? Like we don't, we want to avoid that. However, I think there's so much value here that like, is there, can they go SEO that word that brings up that card and they can download it? Like where do people get a hold of you? Cause I think it's super important that you've given away enough nuggets that I think it's worthy of people. No, I appreciate that. I don't do product pitches because that's one of the ways that I surrender the outcome. But I, so what I'll say is, so thank you for that. Um, well, I'm, I'm not going to not do it since you're asking me to. Uh, so the yeah. first thing is uh, you guys may not realize it or you, you may, or you may totally realize it, but like, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown and, and she's a thought leader with authenticity, but she's an academic. And so when I wrote my book, I told my guys, they're like, if you give away too much, you know, you're, you're, you're undermining what you're going to do after this. I'm like, this book is about what I'm going to do after this. So the book specifically step-by-step -step walks you through how to create a card. It has a sample cards in it. it chapter seven is literally implementation step-by-step. -step. That being said, um, we also have, if you go to michaelbrodyweight.com on my website, there's a mask free program link and you can create a free account. And there's an action card builder in there with little videos for me. That's free. Um, and people can go ahead and do that. Or if they just, you know, if, if they want to email me or find me on LinkedIn or whatever, they can just send me a note. Like I, we're trying to drop seeds with this. Uh, so we want as many people to have these as possible. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think you earned the right to, to, you know, let people know all that. I didn't see that as a pitch as more of a, Hey, here's a really good resource for you. So thank you. Thanks dude. Yeah. What are you seeing presently as the challenge, right? Like, so we're coming out of COVID um, you know, what are you seeing? What are the mistakes you're seeing leaders make as they try to ramp back up? Is there anything? Is it the same mistakes they've made before? Is it worse in some ways, better in others? I mean, I think one simple mistake is I think we're in uncharted territory and leaders that try to pretend that they know exactly what they're doing are going to lose a confidence of everybody that's following them. Um, there's too many variables in a globalized market. There's too many interdependencies that you literally can't anticipate how things are going to go. So I think the safer route is to be like, Hey, I don't, I don't actually exactly know what I'm doing, but I, here's what I know. I can guarantee 
I'm going to lead myself and I'm going to dominate it knowing as much as I can and growing as much as I can. I'm going to share as much as I can. Um, and I think that's like one, just like high level thing, but that also sounds like very Instagrammy. So I'll, I'll make it, um, even more specific. One thing that I am seeing, because I, I do like, so for organizations like EO, YPO and Vistage, I go and I do these mask rehabs for the leaders uh, as a way to plant seeds. And then some of them bring me into their companies and stuff. And one of the things that I see is a lot of people are struggling with how they keep their companies connected um, in post COVID because we already had obviously a lot of virtualization and globalization happening, but obviously COVID turbocharged that. Um, and so people are like, how do I keep my people, you know, connected to each other and growing and keep my culture where I have a distributed workforce, semi-virtual. And I tell them like, dude, if you take your mask off and tell them the stuff that you are struggling with the most, and you model that you create a culture where people are doing that and then they help each other grow, you'll be more connected virtually than you ever were physically. Like literally rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, do uncomfortable work. If you operationalize this as a culture, you will be more connected virtually than you are physically. Um, because you and I, the three of us are connecting because we're talking about some real stuff here, but you can sit trapped in a meeting for two hours talking about the metrics over there and call out, you know, Jimmy for not performing. And you know, Jimmy's upset, you know, there's some elephants in the room and we're not addressing it. And then we get off that meeting and we go, great meeting, guys. I wonder how we do culture. Okay, let's get everybody together for a ropes course. Great. We did a ropes course with our mask on. Why don't you just help people take their mask off? And then it doesn't matter whether they're looking through a webcam or in person. That's great. I, I completely agree. Um, we've flown by on this. Holy cow. We're, we're about 40 minutes in. We, we always ask one last question of you, um, which, you know, it, which I'll do in a second. Well, I'll go ahead and ask it and then give our sponsors a shout out, which is, you know, what can we answer for you? What question do you have for us? But I want to thank um, Vidyard, uh, Salesforce Sales Cloud, and Gong.io, the game changer in conversational intelligence, um, for supporting our podcast and Surf and Sales and an event and all those wonderful things they do. What can we answer for you? What um, I, here, how about this? Uh, the only way that the mastery program will grow is if it practices what it preaches. So what do you think is my or this program's biggest blind spot or challenge? <clears throat> Yours. Um, God, I need a second. Scott, you ready? Can you answer that? Well, I think I'm I, I can think of some of our blind spots. Right. I mean, I Richard, think Richard and I, um, don't have any kind of like long-term plan or strategy for um, the podcast, I think. I think that we don't, I not think, I know, we don't do anything in terms of like repurposing of content whatsoever. Um, there's a massive hole in terms of YouTube. There's massive hole in terms of blog posts and articles and just random content, even little audiogram uh, clips and things like that. Um, and then, you know, we didn't get, get into it and we could talk offline, but like there are stories that, that you share that are very similar to my own story. Um, and, you know, Richard has his, his story. And so, you know, I sit here and think, well, Michael did a fucking Ted talk, Richard, how come we can't do a Ted talk? Right. right? Well, I don't even know how to go about applying to a Ted talk. Why don't I know how to go about applying to it? Because I'm lazy and I don't want to put in the work and energy to go research it and then actually apply and do it because that overwhelms me. 
So we have all sorts of like blind spots around the Surf and Sales podcast and show. So I answered that one, Richard. You answer the hard one because I'm afraid of having an uncomfortable conversation with Michael. You are not. (laughs) You do it. You do it. You mean, what what are you considering my uncomfortable conversation about the blind spot in his program or our program? Oh, his. He yeah. said, he's, yeah, Scott, he Scott covered you his. guys. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, I think the blind spot is, you know, getting it. How do you get it to the masses, right? Like, I don't even, I don't even know how we connected, to be honest with you, right? I honestly and, don't know either. Nah, uh, so I don't even know how you got here, but, um, but I think that, you know, Scott and I are very big on social. We do a ton of stuff on social. I have no idea if you do a ton of stuff on social and we're just not in the same circles, right? Um, but what you do, I don't see anybody talking about extensively on LinkedIn, from which is where Scott and I's audience are, right? Um, your audience may be bigger, right? As you're getting to that higher level, you know, we, we both do stuff with fortune companies, but you, you, you are such at a high level that it, you know, you're hitting at that SVP C-level suite to come down. So my thought is that you might be missing an opportunity just by sharing some of these things, you know, socially. But again, I haven't followed you enough to know if that's an accurate statement or I've just haven't been paying attention. No, I'm, I'm terrible. Uh, so we, 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 that's a, it's a great point. And I see Scott's uh, chat. Um, I appreciate both your humility and honesty. Um, he said, I have nearly 20 times the followers on LinkedIn than Michael for no good reason. Is that a blind spot? You bet your sweet butt it is. Um, I think for me with the, this isn't something to be answered right now in the podcast, but like I was wearing a mask ahead of the book release and I was trying to be a B2C influencer. I didn't want to be, um, frankly, but my team convinced me it was the only way to get this message in the book out. And, um, and so we were doing social every day for like a year on Instagram, um, LinkedIn and Facebook. And I hated doing it. Um, so much so that I refused to do any social content for my team. And I said, literally, I'm just going to do one-on-one coaching sessions with people. And then you guys harvest whatever you can harvest. And I'm not going to pay attention to it. And the problem is, is that, um, I started wearing a mask when I was doing the social content I started trying to be the person I thought that people wanted to see as opposed to just be myself. And so when, um, during the pandemic and, you know, it disrupted the book release and then, you know, we had our, our second child and I was just like, you know what? I'm not being true to myself. I'm a B2B2C guy and, and I don't like social. So I'm shutting it down and I'm just going to serve the people that are in our program. And I'm just going to go position what we're doing for businesses and let them distribute the material to their employees and let that be the way that we plant the seeds. Um, And so on my social channels, you'll see my last post is why I'm not doing social media. It's not because I don't believe in it. Um, I'm jealous of people that are good at it and that do it. It's that it hasn't been something that made my heart sing. um, And it wasn't something that we were good at. And I wanted to focus on other things. That being said, I've recently realized that I was not being true to myself. And way back when I told my team, like, we should just focus on LinkedIn. Um, because yes. that's where this, me- that's where I have the biggest platform compared to the other areas. That's where this message is most, um, different and needed. And, and they weren't comfortable. They were all Instagram and Facebook people because of the way that they looked at their phones. 
And, um, and I, and I held back my unique perspective and it wasn't their fault. Um, I didn't want to do any of it. Right. And so we've been talking lately about spinning it back up just for LinkedIn. Um, but even then all the little things to be good at that are things that I'm so much better at speaking and coaching than doing those things. But now I've got some more team members and they might be able to focus on those things. I'm going to call you out on it and tell you like Scott's ready to chop at this one too, is that LinkedIn is not that hard, right? You fish where the fish are. Your fish are on LinkedIn. They're not on Instagram and Facebook, right? If someone wants to go yeah. get that stuff for you, go for it. But there are, you could literally go in, like I can tell you for a fact, like these are the, these are the blurbs I wrote down, right? Stop telling people what to do. You know, what rigorous authenticity means doing uncomfortable work, um, you know, your weaknesses will get, will get you promoted. You go put that on LinkedIn, just, Hey, your weaknesses will get you promoted faster than such and such. That's it. That's all you got to write. Don't I have to worry about like the right hashtag and the right. No, no, dude. Like do not overanalyze it. Stop. Okay. You can eventually. We'll do it. That doesn't matter. Let's do it. Let's do like a barter and trade. Michael, Richard and I will help you with, uh, some LinkedIn hacks and, and we can invite you back and do a live webinar or some coaching session with some group of people that, that we know. And I'm down. Some more I'm down because seriously, like God works in interesting ways because I, I, I just recently was like, man, you know, if B2B is really my sweet spot or B2B to C, then the entry points, the B2B, then I really should be doing more LinkedIn content, yeah. but I, yes. it's the over, I don't, it's the overthinking it and it being a distraction from serving people. That is like the thing that stops me and I'm a perfectionist. So I think it's gotta be Gary V and I know it doesn't have to be Gary V. I just don't know what the right version is for me. The right version is you. Right. Right version Which is, is what you. you've been saying all along. Right I know. Well, that's dude, why we're all a work in progress, Richard, right? You cannot spot self-deception. so i have all my when that's why when you said you have problems like the one thing i told my team was actually very upset about me sharing vulnerably about my challenges i'm like guys if i if i don't i'm just another tony robbins wannabe over here like i gotta just be real so yeah i would gladly accept um that barter i would love to do that yeah and that perfectionism part (sighs) yeah i'm there i'm blessed i'm blessed to not have that gene right richard yeah Uh, (laughs) i follow b plus and on to the next thing Right. Oh, off we go. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Michael, so much, awesome, Michael. dude. Thank you so much. No, thank you guys. This is great. Yeah. We've really, really enjoyed it. And, and again, shout out to uh, Salesforce, Sales Cloud, Gong.io, and um, Vidyard for, for sponsoring us. So, Michael, uh, folks, please go check out Michael Brody Wait. Check him out on LinkedIn. Check him out on his website. He's clearly got like amazing content that you know I'm about to go devour. So uh, thanks again, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, thank you guys.